Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 918 with Chef Paul Bartolota. I was blessed that I built a relationship with the chefs in the kitchen, but also continued to over deliver. I was the first in. I was the last to leave. I was never too proud to scrub out the garbage cans or sweep them off the floor because I knew that if I earned their respect with work ethic and professionalism and discipline and with curiosity and passion, that more doors would open. And in fact, they did. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about pop menus, full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. Profit, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest owner and co-founder of the Bartolotta Restaurant Group, Chef Paul Bartolotta. So you have Bartolotta, which is what people say locally here, right? Yes. So you chose to make the brand, uh, I guess, 
go with what people want to say naturally. So there's a little bit of hospitality injected into your brand. A little bit. So the story's a little bit more expansive than that. So grew up in Milwaukee, Wauwatosa, you know, local boy, Lincoln, Longfellow, and Tosi's High School, went to, to MATC, Milwaukee or Technical College. Um, and growing up, I grew up as Paul Bartolotta. Yeah. Um, it was had was given a wonderful opportunity to go an apprentice in Europe. Yeah. Landed in Italy, and I wrote my name down, and and the owner of the Italian restaurant was like, "Oh, Bartolotta," <laughs> and I'm like, "No, Bartolotta," and he goes, "No, Bartolotta." <laughs> Say Italiano. He said, "You're Italian." Yeah. I said, "Well, yes," and he's like, "Well, look, oh, Bartolotta." I'm like, "Okay." So of course, shortly thereafter, I called my dad and I said, "Dad," he goes, "Yeah." I've been waiting for this call, you know, and dad <laughs> what have was you like, done to me? <laughs> and the dad was like, well, we thought Bartolotta was just a little bit easier for people to pronounce and yeah. so on and so forth. So my brother and I co-founded the company here in Milwaukee together. He lived his, the, almost his whole life here in Milwaukee. Bartolotta was natural. Um, even for me to say Bartolotta's Lake Park Bistro or Bacchus, a Bartolotta restaurant, or, you know, those are easy, you know, Mr. B's, a Bartolotta steakhouse, super easy. Yeah. Um, but since I was 18 years old, I put my hand out in front of people in Italy, in New York, in Chicago, in Las Vegas, eh, Bartolotta. So it's just totally, and it was, what's ironic and sort of funny about this is when my brother would travel outside of Milwaukee and he'd be with me anywhere and be like, hi, I'm Joe Bartolotta, you know, and it was sort of funny because I'm like, wait a second here. So we've created a little bit of a confusion. I don't want people to misinterpret it in the wrong way, but just it seems very natural to me to be yeah. Bartolotta. And truthfully, everyone outside of the city of Milwaukee knows me as Bartolotta. Bartolotta. Um, so I'm sweating over here because I was where I was like, I'm going to destroy this. I know I'm not going to get it. There is no wrong answer. My last name's Cacciatore. You'd think I'd be a little more sensitive. Cacciatore. To so I was going to say, how would you say Cacciatore? It's Caccia, Caccia, meaning the hunter. Yes. Torre, cacciatore. So what's the torre mean? Oh, gosh, I don't know. You mean, it means you. this is what you do. Okay. Your trade is, Caccia you know, caccia is your hunter, and the, and it is the act of hunting. You are a calciatore. Yeah, because I was told it means Caccia the hunter. hunter. Yes, the hunter. The exactly. Hunter. Yeah, mm -hmm. beautiful. Um, so... So you Man, hunted me down. We just got this like the Italian like this this lesson on how to appropriately pronounce last names. Like we're getting more than I expected out of today's conversation, but we have to get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Success quote or, or mantra. mantra. It's a um, tradition here. At wow. So for me, I would say integrity and authenticity above all else. Integrity and authenticity above all all else why does that come to your mind if the first thing comes to your mind because everything in life is built about trust every relationship that you have in your life is built around trust and without being a person of high integrity your word has to mean something mm. you your actions have to follow your your meaning your values everything we are so to me integrity is a pretty broad word, but it yeah. means a lot. I was going to ask me. what it's it means very, to you. Yeah. It's very personal. You know, it's, it's somewhat altruistic. You know, um, belief is very important to me. Faith is very important to me. So things, um, honesty, truth, um, directness, um, some people don't always get it, but I feel like I am not honest if I'm not honest, right? I feel as though if an employee needs feedback, how I give it to them has to be sensitive and empathetic but the reality is avoiding telling them how they're doing and not investing and in mentoring in the honest dialogue 
um, enables the behavior not to be good. You're not helping them or the organization. Being a parent, saying yes to your kid all the time, enables your kid to have all kinds of bad habits. Sometimes it's hard to say no. So I think integrity in in your business relationships, in your personal relationships, it's all intertwined. Authenticity, on the other hand, has to do with integrity. It has to do with the integrity about your belief system. So this moves into my business, which is how do you do what we do in so many different concepts with a with a high level of authenticity as a foundational uh, benchmark for what you do? And it connects with authentic, with integrity because if you're going to have integrity toward your work, it's got to connect through the authenticity that you do in your in your food and your cooking and who you are. Yeah, um, and this is really resonating with me, and it's one of the reasons. Like your core values are so aligned with what I'm trying to do here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Our first core value is we have integrity, and you know, like it, it's just so important to to do what you say you're going to do. And I put those core values down to keep me in line. So if I steer off what I say I'm going to do, I want my listeners to hold me true it, to it. And authenticity, I feel like it's just being true to who you are and what makes you like what makes you use very well yeah. said being yeah. true to who you yeah. are yeah. is really important and and fundamentally if you are chasing what everyone else thinks you should be chasing you're living your life for other people rather than for yourself and that has to do with personal integrity mm. right and personal authenticity um, yes, we're running a business and so we want our restaurants full. And so it's a balance between how do you deliver something that is, you know, core to who you are as a, as a chef, as a restaurateur, as a hospitality person that wants people to be happy, but yet do it in a way in which it meets your own standard of excellence, your own standard of integrity, your own standard of uh, authenticity. So it's, it, they're, they're interconnected. Yeah. And, um, you're also hitting a vein because a big part of recent conversations has been around candor. And I think what you were talking about earlier, when you, you got to give bad news to somebody, if you're telling them, Hey, good job, but it's really not a good job. You're not doing that person any help because you're not correcting the bad behavior and they're not serving your business. So like, how do you candor, right? How do you use candor yeah. to, 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 what does that mean yeah. to you? So to me, um, I, I want to make a distinction here. I think that it's inauthentic as a person to not be honest and always push yourself to be better. Um, and in doing so, uh, also understand that while you, you as a coach, cause we're, you know, we're the conductors, we're the coaches. We want to encourage our team members to take chances. We want to encourage them to go for it. And when they they hit it out of the park, they know it before you have to tell them. So you're telling them in theory should mean something, but not a ton. Yeah. But I think that it's also important to always have the the idea that perfection is unattainable, that excellence is a journey, it's a habit, uh, and and every day that you start, you know, the day you look in the mirror and you say, I'm going to give it a hundred percent today. And that's the best that I can do. And you even know, if you destroy, destroy last names in the intro of an interview. no, 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 stop. No. But, but reality is, is that I've never made a dish that I couldn't look at and say I would do this little bit different. So we talk about it all the time, creating the scale 
and we say if it's you know what is an acceptable dish what is acceptable standard of work to say that everything every time you do if something is perfect i don't think that anyone truly believes that to be the case so you've got to find you've got to accept acceptable mm-hmm. you've got to find a standard but never ever compromise never ever settle that that's good enough. It's always can be better. It can yes. always be better. Yes. Awesome way to get this thing started. Now it's story time. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Because you started young. You you knew at a young age. You went to school for this. You, I did. You, you went to New York at a young age. You traveled at a young age. We got a lot to cover, man. You've got a I'm, career. Yeah, I, I, it's long and it's interesting. I don't typically talk about it a lot. And I realize that even people within my own organization probably don't even know my journey but it always seems funny, like if I'm sitting with you today, I'm comfortable because you're asking. I don't know if I would feel comfortable just like getting my people together and like, hey, this is a, it seems like you're talking about yourself and it doesn't seem it doesn't seem humble. Mm. Um, it doesn't seem uh, reserved. Um, so um, but when I'm in a forum like this and someone asks me the question, uh, boy, you'd like tee it up. I can swing for the fences. Cause yeah, I, man. I, I, you know, this is a two hour uh, podcast. Yeah, let's knock some out of the yeah, park. Yeah, we, we were not going to have enough time. <laughs> we're just well, not. You're actually bringing up a good point because like, you, you have some amazing background. I mean, working at the Rainbow Room, being in New York City, traveling Europe for seven or eight years, yeah. coming back, I think it was 1994 when you opened your first restaurant, but you had equity in some businesses Nin- before that. Yeah, so, so uh, let me try to give you the cliff notes of the journey. And, and I think the most important thing to talk about for listeners who hear a little bit about a chef's journey or a restaurateur's journey. When I got into this, I, I wanted to be a chef. I didn't realize I'd have to know what discounted cash flow was and a balance sheet. And, and I didn't need to know what, you know, progressive coaching was going to mean or, or what an, an HRIS system is going to be or what, you know, technology is going to look like, you know, in this day and age. So when I started, it was, I was just, I was going to be the cook. I was yeah. going to be the chef. And that is my passion, and that's what always keeps me grounded. Whenever I'm having uh, a stressful time, all I have to do is go in the kitchen and pick up a pan, and I lose myself into what got me here to begin with. Mm -hmm. But my journey started when I was a kid when I was growing up uh, in Wauwatosa, and um, I didn't have money to take girls out on dates. And so uh, I found a job as a dishwasher at a restaurant that's still there on 68th Street called Balistrieri's Italian-American Pizzeria. And I started as a dishwasher and then sort of a prep cook. And then when I was old enough to get an official work permit, I was 16, I started a restaurant uh, in in the heart of Wauwatosa on State Street called The Chancery. And the owner of the restaurant was Joe DeRosa. And I loved the excitement of of working the wheel and and working the kitchen. And it was so much fun, the dynamic. And I was an A and D student in school in high school and A's on anything that was interesting to me. And in D was anything that was kind of bored me. So I, my dad knew me better than me. And, and when I was speaking, speaking to my counselor, he asked me, you know, I think your son has a learning disability. And my dad said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, Paul is taking some very like philosophy and literature and like very difficult classes when he's doing really well, but some of the easier classes, he's just, you know, he's bombing. And you know, my dad in his very, uh, direct manner. He said, well, you're just boring the shit out of him. (laughs) That's the problem. Um, And he said, my son will only focus on what he's interested in. So he knew his son and he said, when I asked him, you know, what he thought about going on to college and where you see yourself, 
And he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know, but I do love working in restaurants and I'd kind of like to be a chef. And my dad said, then be a chef. Follow your passion. So when did you, is there something that happened in your life that triggered this idea of food, this is my path? Or has it just been always omnipresent? We, we never had a lot growing up. The, the Bartolotta table, the Bartolotta table um, is a table that was in our, my mom and dad's house. It was the same house my entire childhood. It's still owned by my sister Maria. Um, that table is a cherry uh, dining room set that we sat at and had long conversations about life and about philosophy and about religion and things that were important, um, culture and and every important meal of our family happened at a table. So we call this the Bartolota table. It's where it all sort of started. And it's where the values that our parents gave to my brother, myself, my two sisters, that's how we grew up. The orientation of the family was born out of that table in that home. And it has carried through into the values that my brother and I founded our company on. Um, you know, we care for our our employees first and foremost. We take care of our guests. Um, we take care of our vendors, our partners, our landlords, our stakeholders. We take care of our community that we grow up in to make it better. And then ultimately, we have to take care of the bottom line because it becomes an ecosystem. If the bottom line is healthy, we can do more for our employees, mm -hmm. have better parties, offer better benefits, offer you know uh, better perks to keep them pay higher pay, uh, more paid time off. Everything we can do for our employees. If we take care of our guests, that keeps employees employed and that keeps the business cycle going. If we're investing in our community, we're giving back to the community that's given to us first. Yeah. And I noticed you came back to your community. I thought that was really special. You went out to, and I, and I recommend everybody do this, like go get the experience, but take what you've learned in your travels, in your experience, bring it home. Cause I guarantee you there's probably more opportunity at home right now with the way the markets are going. Well, it's interesting. You know, the magic of what ended up happening here in Milwaukee were these two brothers that had very different personal adult journeys, but a shared childhood, a shared set of values. Um, my sister Maria has been active in our business for 26 of the 27 of the 29 years. Uh, we're coming up on a 30th year of business. Um, we now own and operate 17 different businesses. We're in the, you know, we're in airports uh, here in Milwaukee. We're in uh, quick casual. We're in food halls. We're in um, executive dining. We are in. Um, we have some exclusive catering venues for large catering spaces, and then we have a fine dining collection. We happen to be sitting here yeah, talking at Bacchus. Uh, beautiful. Yeah, restaurant. and this restaurant is now uh, seventeen years old. It's beautiful. I can't wait to take some photos after this interview. So, uh, w along this journey you've had, going to New York, being in. Italy and France, I believe you stopped in France as well, mm -hmm. correct? Um, are there any key mentors, transformative moments for you where you were like really shifted a gear in your perspective in the world and your, in your, your skill set? Almost too many to talk about. I think that in life, there are moments where someone opens a door, cracks the door open, and then it's us to run through it. Um, not every time it's life changing. But if you don't rush through the door and give it your all, you'll never maximize what could have been. We're all lucky. Anybody who's ever been successful, it's not success because they're amazing or something. They're successful because they're lucky. Mm. They were in the right place at the right time. And fate would have them have that door be slightly 
perked open and then you've got to rush through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the mentors has been, I'm part of an organization called mentor. Okay. Um, it was founded, uh, by, uh, Thomas Keller, uh, Daniel Ballou, uh, Jerome Bocuse, the son of Mr. Paul, Paul Bocuse. Um, and it's the team USA that, that basically the name of it was about mentorship. We call ourselves mentor. Um, and it, and it is, we compete in the Bocuse d'Or, which is the culinary Olympics in France. I sit on the culinary council with many of these chefs. We do events to raise money and we raise money to support team USA to create a young chef and Comi competition so that we have like a farm team coming up. And then we have a grant program that is mentoring future generations of chefs who will then go out and stage and apprentice with various chefs around the world by leaving their hometown that you spoke about and going to work at Nomen Copenhagen or going to work with Thomas in, in, in French Laundry or Danielle in New York or, or working with you know top chefs in Italy or France so that these young chefs can come back to their town and, and then really pay it forward. Again, all the chefs that I know, we all talk about the people that influenced our lives. So when I um, was visiting my sister in New York the owner of the Rainbow Room, Tony May, was one of the, I mean, I, first it's John Marangelli here in Milwaukee that created my palate for, you know, for food. And Marangelli obviously was my first real maestro. And then the second mentor would be Tony May, who opened the door. He owned the Rainbow Room, and my sister worked there, and my, my brother-in-law worked as the maitre d' at the Rainbow Room, and my sister was running the uh, the uh, David Rockefeller's Luncheon Club at, at, at Rock Center, and I met Tony May, and he sent me to Italy. Um, and I remember the first time I met the man, you know, we were sitting, waiting for him for hours, and, and I finally sat down to have lunch with him. I remember exactly what table the Rainbow Room. And the first question he says to me, Paul, please, tell me what you know about beans. You know, he had this very, you know, Neapolitan accent. And I'm thinking, why is he asking me about beans? You know, I'm a cook in Milwaukee. Why is he asking me about beans? He said, you see, you young chefs, you think it's about the recipe. But first, you need to understand the ingredient. You need to study the food, the culture, the anthropology. And the reality is, is those words stuck. Mm. So when I got to Italy and I started with Paracuki for uh, the first six, seven months, I was supposed to be there for six months and seven plus years I was tooling around Italy. I worked in more than a dozen restaurants from Sicily up into the Alps. I became the chef de cuisine of a two-star Michelin restaurant called San Domenico in Imola and uh, near Bologna uh, when I was in my mid-20s, 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ended up having, they were a member of two super important food organizations in France, one was Relais Chateau, and the other one was um, Tradition et Qualité. And these were important uh, French organizations that the Italian restaurants were a member of as well, as well as Les Soste in Italy and Lini Italian Cucina. There were two important organizations in Italy. So as a result, through the network of Gianluigi Morini and San Domenico and Valentino, my next maestro, um, they opened the doors for me to go all over Italy and all over France to stage, and so my first stage was with uh, Roger Verger and Moulin Mougin down in the south of France. And after about six months with uh, with Verger, I was finishing my stage five six months. Um, uh, I, would, I asked Monsieur Verger to sign some books to give his gifts and to take back from my book collection of his books. 
And he said, you know, chef, he said, uh, he said, are you going to stay here in France or are you going back to Italy? And I said, well, you know, I have another stage in about six months, five months with uh, Trois Gros. I said, so I'm probably going to go back to Italy. And he said, well, would you like to stay in France? Because they were closing for the season. It was coming up on December. And I said, well, yes, I'd love to stay in France, but I really don't have anything lined up. And he said, stay here. And he went upstairs and two minutes later, he came down in the kitchen. He goes, you still want to stay in France? I said, of course, I'd be happy to, if you have a recommendation, I don't have to go back to Italy right now. So Verger yells, you know, Philippe, Philippe. And this young chef, Philippe comes over and he says, you're going to Lyon. And he goes, yes, yes. When we close today, he said, yes. And he said, you drive him. Uh, Paul is starting with Monsieur Paul tomorrow. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to work at this restaurant called Monsieur Paul. Okay. And I'm thinking, you know, there was no internet. There was, you know, you know, TV was still in black and white practically. And so I'm like, okay. Um, So I get in the car, pack my bags. And I I say to Philippe, so Monsieur Paul is a good restaurant. And he like slaps me. He's like, are you kidding me? You're going to work with Paul Bocuse. You start tomorrow. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, Paul Bocuse. And so incredibly nervous because obviously another incredible icon uh, probably yeah. the first real true global celebrity chef was Paul Bocuse and the Bocuse store is something he founded uh, in Lyon which now Team USA competes and his son is is now running uh, Bocuse store so he's no longer active in Team USA um, he's more of a figurehead he can't mm. be involved anymore uh, out of the you know prudence uh, but but he was part of the people that that, that created Mentor here in the U.S. Yeah. that competes in this. And then from there, I worked. I'm going to tap the brakes real quick. Okay, I'm going to tap right. the brakes. I got to pull back some layers. Uh, you dropped so much on us. So, uh, I told you two hours. I know, man. But I, I, I'm, I'm just this getting is exactly started. what I love. But you know, there's some things that I just I'm curious about. Like you're getting you're being given these opportunities. You, it doesn't seem like you're asking for them. You, always going back with Tony May, he said, I'm going to send you to Europe. And then you're, you're just getting people who are saying, I'm going to connect you with this person. I'm going to connect you with this person. Okay. What was it that you were doing that opened <clears throat> the doors or how are you getting your foot in that freaking crack that you talked about earlier? Like, how um, are you getting in there? What were you doing? I think that people sense my passion first and foremost. They realized I was absolutely absorbing everything um, that I wanted to, when I was working at San Domenico, I'd get up in the morning at, you know, five in the morning and the kitchen would open at nine. And I'd go work at a butcher shop mm. in the morning. There were other nights where I'd, I'd go to a bakery at three in the morning and help them bake bread to learn how to make bread. Or I'd get up at five in the morning and drive to a caseficio where I'd learn how to pull or make mozzarella or pecorino or ricotta. Um, in a small little place. So everything I was doing was about learning. When all the other chef friends of mine that were young kids were out sort of partying, I was too worried to get caught doing anything that I shouldn't have been doing. So I wasn't. I was the guy that was taking my days off and taking a train to another town and saving some shekels to try this trattoria or this restaurant that I needed to visit and get to know. I was visiting wineries to, to visit the, how to learn how the wines were made. I was taking Morini's car and driving up to Trieste and spending two days with uh, Dr. Ernesto Illi to learn about how the torrefazione of, of coffee is made to learn the difference about excellence in coffee uh, and espresso. So things like this for me were formative, but it wasn't work because it was just learning, 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 learning. And, and when you talk about early like integrity and authenticity, I know that I'm preachy and I kind of never shut up and my employees certainly know that, but I want 
that people understand that when I'm talking, it's because I've had so many people share so much information that I feel as a mentor, as a it, to be an authentic person, a person of integrity, I need to be that same sharer. I need to give everything I can as a coach and mentor on the table every yeah. day in my restaurants. And therefore, I'm also somebody who can learn from my dishwasher mm. or my hostess yeah. or my doorman. Everyone has value. Or my night cleaner. Yeah. And if you're not listening and paying attention, you stop learning. And I, I have some of my chefs who are teaching me newer techniques that I may be a little bit more old school on and the world is evolving and technology. And so you've got to be a lifelong learner and you also have to be a lifelong sharer of what you know. Hoarding what you know, I don't know. I, a lot of people do that. I just, I'm a, I want to receive everything, but first I need to give everything. Yeah, and that's one of the big reasons why I started this podcast is because I there there seems to be or there seemed less so now in the past ten years. I noticed there's been kind of a an awakening of the more you give, the more you get. If you want to attract onto yourself people, you have to be generous with your knowledge, and you, you have to help people progress in their careers. So you're seeing this awakening of people being more liberal with their information and their knowledge. They want to give. They want to give. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking to myself, well, I mean, I'm not in Europe. I'm not in Italy. I'm not in France. I can't go do these things and learn. Screw you. Mm. Yes, you can. Do it in your own restaurant. Take them and go into work early. Talk to your chef and be like, chef, I'm hungry. I want information. That will light your chef's day up. That They love hearing that because they love to share. They love to share that passion. Take initiative. Go do extra. So, show people your passion. So let me give you two examples. You asked a good question like, what were you doing? What did you do? Well, that was my early years with San Domenico and with Paracuki. But when I was in France, for example, I got two distinct stories that that might clarify this. So I'm working with Verger, and of course I'm the American, right? And so you know the French were very prideful people, so you know they give the American the job of shucking peas or whatever, right? But one of the jobs I had to do, they had this famous salad d'omar, this lobster salad that Verger made, and man, it sold 70, 80 orders a night. It was a busy restaurant. Uh, we were busy. I was there during the summer. It was packed. You know, the Festival du Cannes and so on and so forth. It was busy. And um, and so I would be the guy that have to shuck and clean, you know, five cases of oysters every morning. And I realized I'd come in at nine o'clock and it took me the better part of the morning to do that. And I was like, well, I am literally working for free to learn and I'm spending all my time doing something I already know how to do. So I talked to the, the fish guy and I said, hey, listen, you come every morning at nine. Could you come earlier? And he goes, yeah, but the kitchen isn't open. I said, well, if I can get the kitchen open a little earlier, could you come? He said, yeah, it'd actually be better for me. I could come by at like 6 a.m. So, of course, I get the keys, get permission from the chef, um, open up 6 a.m. I'm in the kitchen by myself. I'm blanching all the lobsters. I'm separating the heads and the tails and the claws, and I'm cutting off the rubber bands, and I'm doing it step by step. And by the time the rest of the crew came in at 9 a.m., I had cleaned five cases of lobsters. Wow. I had cleaned up the place. And now I was free to work with the saucier yeah. or learn how to make terrine de foie gras or learn how. To, and, and, and so I took the opportunity to create. And I will never forget. I'll never forget this. After a couple of days of shucking lobsters, the, the shells had cut into my fingers. So I went down to this little village called Le Canet, just, next, just below Mujan, 
to buy, you know, those gloves. those gloves yeah. that your mom uses to do dishes. <laughs> and of course, when the, when the French guy saw me wearing the gloves, oh, look at the little American, you know, with his little gloves and whatever, you know. But I was plowing through the lobsters, right? <clears throat> now everyone's wearing gloves. <laughs> at the end of this, when the chef, when Verger saw that I was doing it and, and the, the, the CDC, Serge Cholet, saw that I was doing this, whatever, and he said, okay, no more, you're making lobster. You're on the sauce station. After like two days, there's this new kid like making lobsters. I think he was from Germany and everybody was making fun of him. And I took my little yellow gloves. I'm like, would you like my gloves? <laughs> you know? And uh, so, so that was one. That's how I got. And that's how Verger and Cholet. And then I played tennis a lot with Serge Cholet, who was the chef de cuisine in the afternoon. And he was, you know, obviously he was. And I made sure that I lost. Mm. I got good enough <laughs> that I almost, because I could have whooped him. But I always got to a point where I could have beaten him. And he thought, oh, I just pulled it out. I'm like, ah, oh, you were better than me again today. <laughs> You're never going to beat the chef. I mean, that's just... It's just bad form. And then when I was with uh, a similar story, when I was with the Bacuse. So so obviously in that area, they have poulet de bresse, this famous chicken uh, that they cook and and the the birds from that area. And and Verger and uh, Bocuse is very well known for poulet en vessie, where they cook it in the vesica or the the bladder. And and they boil the the, the chicken. Uh, And it's very famous preparation. And they sold a ton of it. And we're always cleaning ducks and, 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 and the poulet and the chickens. And I was just tired of cleaning a chicken. I already knew how to do that. So again, same thing. I would do my prep in the morning. And instead of doing the, 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 the cleaning of the birds from five to six, I would stay throughout the afternoons. And it was cold outside, and I, I lived in a in a building that was sort of a brothel about a mile away, and I didn't have a winter coat because I came there from the south of France without a winter coat. And one day, you know, Monsieur Polk walked, Paul Bercus walked through the kitchen, and, you know, he's like, qu'est-ce uh, que You know, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm cleaning the, the... He goes, I see that, but why now? You should be on break. And I said, well, I said, I live down the road. I have nowhere to go, and I don't have a coat. And quite honestly, chef, I... I know how to clean chicken. I didn't come here to work and learn at Paul Blocus's restaurant to clean chicken. I want to learn to make the sauce. So he smiled at me and he nodded. And then the next, the next morning I came in, he grabbed me and he said, what are you doing tomorrow morning? I said, well, I'm coming to work. And he's like, no, no, 6 a.m. And I said, uh, why? And he goes, I will pick you up and I will take you to the market tomorrow morning. Mm. So now I got Paul Bocuse driving to my little brothel down the road to pick me up in his little truck. Wow. And then he realized I came out without a coat. So we stopped back at the restaurant. He went inside and outside of the walk-in freezer, there was a coat and he grabbed the coat and he said, here, here's your new <laughs> coat. And he said, come with me. And so we went to the market and I'm in the market with Paul Bocuse, with Monsieur Paul in Leal de, de Lyon. Uh, buying these, you know, chickens and, and fish and all this other stuff. And we're looking at these artichokes and he says, do you make artichokes in Italy? And I said, I do. And he goes, how do you make them? And I said, wow, we make, you know, fried artichokes, braised artichokes. And he goes, okay, we buy this case. And of course we get back in the kitchen. And of course he tells uh, the chef, um, Jaloux, uh, Chef Roger Jaloux, he said, you know, he's going to make me artichokes for lunch because he had his little dining room right outside. And sure enough, I'm cooking and he comes in the kitchen to watch me how I cut and clean the artichokes. I mean, I'm now I'm like standing next to Monsieur Paul and he's watching me how to fry a whole, you know, carciofa la Judea or carciofa la Romana. Um, 
And every day he started coming to me and saying, hey, make me some pasta, make me some pot fresh. Yeah. You know? And so um, I was blessed that I built a relationship with the chefs in the kitchen, but also continued to over deliver. I was the first in, I was the last to leave. Yep. I was never too proud to scrub out the garbage cans or sweep them off the floor because I knew that if I earned their respect with worth with work ethic and professionalism and discipline and with curiosity and passion, that more doors would open. And yeah. in fact, they did. You were opening the doors. You were pushing that door open. You were literally creating openings in your day to learn. And I have the scars that. on my hands from the lobsters to prove yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, because you, you were given a task. You said, okay, I can do that on my own. I'll do that on my own time. So when when the the opportunity comes, I'm available. And, and uh, you were literally opening your own door. And I they, mean, I wanted to learn to make sauces. Yeah. I knew how to clean chickens and, and lobster, you know? So, so I, the, yeah, the lesson here is to be proactive, to go above and beyond. To, to People are going to pick up on this, and you literally got to open your own door. You got to get creative. You got to think outside the box and maybe you weren't intentional about it then like as far as like knowing what you were doing as far as how you were creating the opportunity but looking back it's so obvious like you would go in early to do the things that you were responsible for your liability so you would open up time to get assets knowledge information i think that they understood that that's how they you know the world has changed I'm the actually, way yeah, the way an apprentice works is different than the way it used to uh, i'm happy you're going here yeah and and so while I want to be respectful of people's time, I want that there's a work-life balance. No one should be cooking the, you know, 24-7 and never having any free time and never have a family. This is just our job. Mm. It's just, it's what we're passionate about. But what should be important to us is our family. Yeah. The people we love, the relationships. Your own um, health. Faith, yeah. your health. Yeah. These are things, you know, in our house growing up, we had... You know what? What we've coined is the three F's. Starts with faith, then it moves to family, and then it moves to food. Faith, family, food, and we were deeply religious as a family. Not holy rollers, not walking around. No, but just the values you live by are values that are 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 important to you as a person. And and you can be in you can be a non-religious person like my wife, but be a person of incredibly high values and yeah. integrity. Yeah. Uh, so it's not your religion, it's who you are and what that guides you to be as a person. Um, so, you know, faith, you know, faith, family and food, you know, it was all about family and relationships. And then the food part of it was everything we did, we did at the Bartolo at the table, the family table. Yeah, man, I'm loving this conversation so much. I can't believe we're already almost 40 minutes into the conversation. We haven't even gotten to I'm only on my second restaurant in France. <laughs> <Yeah>. Come on. <laughs> it's crazy. The time goes by so fast, but you're definitely dropping just just living vicariously through your story, making painting the picture of what it takes to create opportunity to open the door for yourself. I mean, that's absolutely laid out there. Uh, I think now's a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors and we're going to come back and talk about your return in your i think you're in your early 30s correct when i came back to the yeah. states uh or late 20s 28 yep, that's right 20s, yep. all right we'll be right back Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most 
positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We are back and we were going to move ahead, but during the break, you told me that there were a few more things you want to touch on before we move forward. So go ahead. So sure. <clears throat> so we are the sum total of our experiences and uh, I've been blessed in so many different ways. I had John Marangelli, who is the mentor who, who, as a as a maestro literally taught me, you know, taste memory, flavor development. Then I go work with Paracuki, who inspired me about Italy. Tony May, who sent me over there. Wait, then I real quick with Tony May, because I was curious about this. Did you ever work with him before going over there? No, I had my sister worked. Oh, because for it was him, the connection. And my sister worked for him, and he was friends of one of my father's got good it. friends, which is how my sister got a job at the Rainbow Room originally. Thank you for clarifying. And that. then, and then, and then, literally, when I went to, you know, he, I had lunch that day, and he wrote me a, he said to me, you know, write me a letter to prove that you're serious. You want to go work in Italy, and I'll set it up for you. I did. Didn't hear from him for six months. He said, by the way. Do you have any money saved? I said, no. He said, do you speak Italian? I said, no. And, and he said, okay, well, take some Italian classes, try to save some money, uh, and write me a letter. I wrote the letter immediately, didn't hear from him for six months, and then one random night he calls me at Marangeli's, and he said, yeah, Tony May. And he goes, yes, you have to come to New York next week. You spend the weekend with me, and then you fly to Italy, and you start your new job on Wednesday. And I was like, okay, how's your Italian? I said, I haven't taken any lessons. And he's like, okay. And he goes, have you saved any money? And I said, no. And I said, but I can figure something out. He goes, don't worry about the money. And he said, just be here. So, of course, bought an airline ticket. I invited all my friends and family, relatives. I cooked a dinner at Monangeli's. They put up a little wicker basket in the center. Everybody wrote checks and envelopes and cash and whatever. Man. And I think I raised $2,100. Um, Which in the eighties was bank, yeah, yeah. Uh, it really wasn't that much money, but, but I mean, it was enough to get you get there. You, probably got me to New York. Yeah. And then Tony May, you know, one day said, "Here," he hands me this envelope with a wad of money, and I said, "You know," I said, "If I need something, I'll ask." But thank you for offering. And he said, "You're going to be okay." And I said, "I'll figure it out. If I need something, Dude, I'll ask." So many subliminal messages here, man. Just and the I, little things of just and paying just, it forward and, and, and giving. I, and, and I just said, you know, if I need something, I'll ask. And then when I did run out of money, instead of asking for money from him. I said, if I come back to the States for a couple of months, can you give me a job? And he put me at the Rainbow Room during the day. I worked at the River Cafe at night. So two jobs, full time, two eight-hour shifts, 16-hour days to save as much money, sleeping on my sister's couch in New York to assemble enough money to go back and continue my apprenticeships. So um, so that's what it took, right? Uh, it was exhausting, but it was fun. Yeah, I think I derailed you because you're... you're t- so, so, yeah. I'm, so I'm in Italy, um, and then now I go to France, and while I'm in France, 
I'm, I work with uh, Taiwan in Paris. And at Taiwan, I work with uh, Claude Delaigne, the chef, Philippe, the sous chef, uh, the current chef for, uh, for um, Joël Robuchon, Eric Bouchnoir, was a cook with me at the time. <clears throat> and, but the most important thing I took away at Taiwan was when I met Monsieur Vuinat, the owner, and I walked the dining room and I saw the excellence of service. I asked him, you know, can I trail in the dining room? And, and Monsieur Vuinat said, but, you know, was a cuisinier? He said, you know, you're a cook. And I said, I know, but, but I want to own restaurants one day. And I've never seen a dining room run like this. So he said, no, 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 no. And I said, please, I'd really. So I pounded him a couple of days. I made a, an extra course for him one day for lunch that I sent out a pasta. And then I came out and, and the dining room, which he eats by himself. And I said, can I please trail in the dining room? And he finally said, yes. So he said, you need black pants. You need this. I went out and I had no money. I bought whatever I could do to, to look good and whatever. And he put, and I followed for, I don't know, eight or 10 different services in the dining room at the wow. end of my apprenticeship just because I wanted to watch and get a feel for what three-star Michelin service was in arguably one of the most disciplined dining rooms anywhere. And it was funny because years later when I took my wife back to Paris, you know, 15 years after I had 10 years, after, 15 years after I'd worked there, I had dinner at Taiwan. Monsieur Vrinat was there and I sit down and there's this perfectly pressed curled napkin. And I'll never forget my, my girlfriend that I'm Robbie's like, I get it. And I was like, what? Now I get you. I'm like, what? He goes, look how perfect this napkin is. And I said, I know, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like this perfect curl. It was like so perfect right. that they had a mangle and it had starched and wow. it was like perfect linen it was she goes i get it now i know why you're so obsessed with like everything has to be just and perfection doesn't exist i know that but you've gotta like push yourselves to your best um so that was great so then when i was at uh, Tuagro, um another experience was was madame olympia pierre Tuagro's uh, uh wife currently the restaurant is being run by michelle um you know she was from piemonte so Olympia would be like, oh, you're the Italian in the kitchen. Can you make some food for me? And of course, <laughs> what I ended up finding myself doing in all these French restaurants was the French were curious about Italian food. We were there going to learn because let's face it, the French had professionalism and discipline and, and, and three-star Michelin and so But they were curious about the flavor and the history of the Italian food. So I was blessed to be able to build relationships by being able to cook some Italian food for them in their restaurants. It was a give and take. It was, yeah. for sure. Yeah, awesome. For sure. So when did you know it was time to come back? Well, that's an, wow, that's, a, that's an interesting one. So there was a time that San Domenico, where Valentino um, called me and said, you know, when are you going to be back in Italy? And I said, you know, in a couple of weeks. He said, that'd be great. And I came back. There was something personal in his life going on, and he really wasn't able to spend time in the restaurant like he wanted to. So he asked me if I would run the kitchen. I was 25 years old. It was a two-star Michelin restaurant. I had done many, not all my stages probably by then in France, but many of them. And he promoted me to chef de cuisine. So keep in mind, there was a kitchen full of Italians. And he promoted the American to be the chef de cuisine. All the cooks in the kitchen who were my pals and buddies not so much anymore. <laughs> not so much. Oh, and um, and I learned one of the most valuable lessons of my life. It was the most humbling lesson I learned. I never forgot it. But I was 
when Valentino was out of the kitchen for an extended period of time, it was a two-star Michelin restaurant, and we wanted to be three. So we were pushing hard. And I realized Valentino was one of my best friends. He was also my maestro. He wasn't that much older than me. And I realized he's not going to lose a Michelin star on my watch. So, of course, the perfectionism in me, the professionalist, you know, the, the attention to detail guy, uh, you know, if the garbage cans weren't scrubbed out correctly, I would ask the cook to clean them again. If the if the little puff pastry wasn't exactly the right amount of gold, then I'd ask him to rebake them. You know, if like if the if the cold plate for the cold food or the warm plate for the warm food wasn't hot enough or cold enough, you know, I'd have them to redo it like like obsession with whatever with perfectionism. And I realized that the the manner in which I did it alienated a lot of these. First, they were jealous and envious or whatever. I could understand that. But I was was probably a jerk. And at one point, there was almost a mutiny, and they all went to Morini and called Valentino and said, if Paul doesn't leave, we're all going to leave. So Morini, the owner, said, you know, Paul, what's going on? I don't know. You know, I'm just trying to do this. I'm just trying to do it right. So I had decided that I was doing a disservice to the restaurant and that I should leave. Mm. And there were a couple of guys who I thought were sort of, you know, hoping to get promoted into that position. So it was a little bit of undermining of me. Uh, but I but I earned it. I was a jerk. Yeah. Right. Give me an example of. I just like, I, I, I just I just I, I wasn't mean spirited because I'm not that guy, but I am exacting and a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. And so I was pushing so hard not to be to blow it. And I never forget that that. When when I announced that I was going to leave and it was like, oh, everybody's so happy we got rid of him, whatever. Um, once it set in to all the cooks that I was actually going to leave and Valentino's like, okay, I got to pick somebody else. I said, but before I leave, I'd like to have a meeting with the entire crew and all of you guys to be here. And so I stayed up all night and I made croissant and made, you know, orange juice, or whatever. And I created this buffet and I invited all the chefs there and I said, hey, guys, I said, I'm leaving because I understand that I've created more tumult for the restaurant that I love so dearly and I don't ever want to be the guy that ruins San Domenico. And I said, but I need for you to understand, if nothing else, what has transpired. I said, when Valentino asked me to assume this responsibility, it was an awesome responsibility. Not that it was awesome, cool. It was an immense responsibility. I said, I didn't want to be the guy that took my maestro's restaurant and ruined it and lose a star. The whole team leaves, right? You know, and, and no, but not even about the team. Yeah. Before the team would leave, I didn't want that the food standard wasn't at the excellence while he was not there. And that I was the guy running the kitchen that blows it for him. Yep. So my obsession for trying to protect Valentino and Morini and their reputation was an obsession to make it the best that it could be because I didn't want to be the guy to blow it. The guy makes complete in, sense, yeah. right? And, but I was too young to know You're that twenty-five you, years old and Your frontal lobe's not even developed at that yeah, age. <laughs> whatever. Uh, so, so, and I said, as I said, him, you know, we used to go out for pizza every every night after work, and I said, you don't invite me anymore. We used to go to the seacoast on our days off. You guys don't invite me anymore. I I lost all of my friends along the way, and. I carry the weight of getting up in the morning and choosing the best products in Bologna and going to the Casa Feature to get the best fish and the Casa Feature to get the best cheese. And I just said, and I just didn't want to be the guy to blow it. Distill the underlying message. The message of it was that that I learned was you don't net, you don't need to compromise your standards ever, 
but you need to get other people to understand the vision and to buy in because it wasn't my responsibility alone to keep Valentino second star. It was all of our responsibility. And I realized I was carrying the weight and I was projecting that, that stress and pressure Mm -hmm. that I carried onto everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I needed to, I need, and, and I had a different journey by then. So I was sharing as much as I could, but sharing to a person who viewed you as your peer did sounded or was perceived differently. If I was intended, it was intended to share. It was perceived as preachy, Mm. right? So, you know, when you are about change, when you're about um, evolving, when you're about sharing, it's as much being a good communicator to let people know. And when they all found out and they really understood that I was carrying this weight, when I left to go pack my bags, the group all got together and said, we don't want Paul to leave. <laughs> we just Man. want him to be our buddy again. Yeah. And I wanted to be their buddy again too. Yeah. But not at the expense of the standards. Mm-hmm. So I told them all, I'm happy. I want to go and eat pizza with you guys. I, I said, but collectively, he's not ready to come back yet. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ever compromise excellence. Mm. That you're asking too much of me. So are you with me? And they're like, We're in. We don't want to let Valentino down either. It was purely a lack of our understanding yeah. there was a mutual goal. They didn't want to let Valentino down. They didn't want to let me down. I didn't want to let anybody down. We were all in love with the same vision of this place. So, but I learned a valuable lesson about myself, you know, and, and, uh, and I've stumbled across it since. When you want to improve something and evolve it, it takes fortitude and vision and tenacity, but it takes a village. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. So I think it's time to talk about your, your your trip back to the States. You come back when you land. It's you're back in New York City, correct? 1990 to 1991. Does that sound accurate? Uh, no, I came back in 88. 88. That's right. And the, just at the end of 87, beginning of 88, we opened San Domenico in summer of 88. And I came back to, to design the kitchen and uh, right before Christmas and also to... Um, help at Palio restaurant in New York under Andrea Hellriegel, who was another chef from the Sud Tirol, which was an amazing chef. He saw me as a threat that I was in his kitchen and six months from now, I was going to be opening a competing restaurant, by the way. And he treated me too poorly. And one day I just grabbed him in the kitchen. And I said, I'm going to be doing the kitchen of San Domenico Nimoa. What I learned from you will be for my future benefit. I give you my word of honor. I will never cook one dish that I learned from Andrea Hellerigal until it's for my own restaurant or for my own interest. I give you my word. But in the meantime, I'm here. I want to work. I want to make your restaurant better. And from that moment on, Andrea and I were like famous friends. Nice. I mean, he became another excellent, incredible mentor to me. So what were the biggest lessons he taught you aside from food? Because This I'm- guy was 65 years old and he was on the line cooking with us. Wow. He was an expedite and he was standing next to me like on the saute station, sauteing veal medallions and deglazing it and making sauce. And I was like, man, this guy and his is his style of cooking was was Italian and German and Austrian and French all mixed together. He had some of the most unique style of cooking of any chef I'd ever. And I, I say to a lot of people, probably the most uniquely styled chef that I ever worked for. 
in terms of his cooking style. Brilliant chef, brilliant guy. But as far as business, so he led by example. Sixty-five. I think that was the the message that sixty-five years old. He's, he's he wasn't too shoulder. proud to get in and mix it up, and he never lost his touch with the pan. Got it. He wasn't a a, a celebrity chef. He wasn't an executive chef. He was a chef's chef. Yes, that was the words that were in chef's my mind. Chef's chef. Yeah. So I mean, I don't want to just jump ahead to when you make it back to. Uh, so then I opened San Domenico. Okay. So I opened San Domenico in '88 with Valentino. Valentino would go back and forth. I would stay pretty much permanent. I was originally the CDC, the chef de cuisine. We got three stars on opening. Um, I designed the kitchen. I laid it out. I did all the acquisitions. I trained. Uh, I have a funny Tony May story. You'll love this one. So, so about two months before we opened, Tony May said to me, so Paul, he goes, you asked for a great kitchen. How's the kitchen coming along? I said, that's a beautiful kitchen. Thanks for, you know, I gave you enough money to build the kitchen and the right cookware. I'm like, Tony, it's amazing. It's great. He goes, how about the products? Did Mimo, my brother, get you all the products that you wanted? Because Mimo, his brother has a company called Bonitalia, and he imports amazing stuff. And I had, I had brought farro and things that had never been, Botarga, had never been to the States in any volume anyway. Um in San Domenico in the 80s and all these unique products and a specific olive oil from uh, from Empoli. And he was brought out and he goes, so Tomimo got you the food you need. I said, we've got amazing products, very unique stuff. He goes, good. And he goes, and the young chefs that you trained in San Domenico and the apartments we got for them above the restaurant, is everybody settled in and they're here? I said, yeah, we're training them. They know the menu already. They're, they're excited to be in America. We got all the visas, all J1 visas. It's awesome. And he goes, so your kitchen is good. And yes. And he goes, and the products, you have what you need. And he says, yes. And he goes, and the team, your chefs, you're all trained. Said, yes. And he goes, perfect. He said, you have no, you, his answer was, he said, you have no excuse for failure. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that. And I was just like, <laughs> gulp. I'm like, Man. oh my gosh, was that a setup? <laughs> yeah. and, and here I am like, you know, 27, 28 years old, you know, opening this restaurant on, you know, Center Park South. Um, and Bruno Dusin was the maitre d', taught me, another mentor, taught me how to work the dining room. Um, you know, he would tell me, you know, okay, the first seating is over and the pre-theater is done. And he would say, okay, Paul, I need you to stop at table 21. They're a group of Italians. They knew you from Imola. I bought them a bottle of Berlucchi. Ask them how the Berlucchi was. I told them it was from you. Got it. He goes, stop at table 15. It's Mr. and Mr. So-and-so. They're having a, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. They're having a fight. Say hello. Don't stay long. And, you know, then go to this other table and he would tell me where to go. And he said, and the table nine. Yeah. So tonight we had, you know, Diane Sawyer and so and so and so and so. And that's their favorite table. And I couldn't give that table to any one of them because they're three people. That's their favorite table. So I put a, an unknown person there, go over there and spend a lot of time. So it'll make it the other people feel like that's somebody more important than them and they're going to want to know who it is. Okay. So spend a lot of time at that table. And so you learn the, the psychology of yeah. the dining room and yeah. how to work the room. And it's like, and every night it was like Woody Allen or it was, you know, it, it was, you know, Pavarotti. It was like, there were, that restaurant was full of the who's who. I think it was Tony May too that you were talking about when you said it's not about the food as much as it's about the culture, the ingredients, and the anthropology. And I, I love that mentality. And that's one thing that I've figured out. I think the the answer to our future and figuring out how we march into the future to make a better restaurant industry is in studying our past and studying human behavior and studying what got us here. And I think I think we're steering a, like we're we're almost 
over the past 50, 30 years, we've gotten away from what made us us and we're evolving into this different world. But I think that human evolution doesn't happen overnight. You know, like I think if we really want to be happy, if we really want to exist in the way we're meant to exist, it's a matter of studying our history, studying why we are the way we are and leaning into that versus trying to evolve away from it. What are your thoughts on that? So when I worked in France, I worked in Southern France, one restaurant, two in Central, and one up in Paris. Yeah. And I did my pastry school with uh, Le Notre as well, my pastry training while I was in Paris. When I was in Italy, I worked from Sicily to the Alps in a lot of these regional restaurants. And in most cases, they were more rustic regional restaurants because I was more interested in the study of the history of that local food rather than an evolved or or alta cucina kind of environment. I view the Italian kitchen as sort of three different categories, uh, traditional and regional, regionally inspired and uh, cucina moderna cucina uh, in the the interpretazioni personale meaning you know there's the regional and traditional textbook here's how you make this dish in that region regionally inspired maybe a marriage of two or three ingredients that are identifiably italian and regional but not necessarily a you could say this is from Piedmont and this is from, from, and I'll give you an example. And then I believe that the Italian kitchen also needs to have a space to have a personal evolution, a personal level of creativity. But as I've gotten older, I, when I was younger, I was cooking more creative. But as I've gotten older, I've done the exact opposite. I think it's Tony May chirping in my ear. But I do believe that you're right. I think that learning more about regional food is more exciting. And currently, uh, our chef at Ristorante is doing a journey of Italy where every every three to four weeks, she changes a different region. Uh, we do this deep study. We've traveled these regions. I've had lots of experience. He has traveled there. And so we're collaborating. He's leading it a lot. And we've done an amazing, we've done almost 300 new dishes, sourcing and bringing in incredibly unique products and studying and telling the story of the history of this soup that was made in the Gonzaga court, you know, in the Renaissance is a soup that we were yeah. making with, with almonds. And, and so we've done some very interesting food. I think that's what has stimulated me for personal growth, but we still need to evolve and stay modern. Got it. So when was the actual first time you owned a restaurant? And I realize we're probably skipping over stuff, but I want to make sure I get into what you learned when you had to do it yourself. So when I left San Domenico, so I, w- I would love to k- give a little bit of context. Yeah. Because when I left San Domenico, I thought I was ready to open a restaurant. And I got out and you know talked to a few people, and I knew all these people that were of influence. They're like, oh, you should open your own restaurant. So I'm out there thinking about doing it. I decide I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden, I start looking. I get a real estate broker, and I'm starting to think, myself, wow, I wouldn't know how to negotiate a lease to save my life. By the way, I don't know if I've actually figured out how to raise all the money I need yeah. and all these other things. So, you know, it's okay to leap, but, you know, make sure there's a net, yeah. right? So I didn't have a net. So I realized, well, maybe, maybe I'm a little too early for this. I'm a really good chef, but what do I know about the restaurant business? And at the same time, I got a call from Rich Melman in uh, Let Us Entertain You in Chicago to do some consulting with Rich. And I, I, I love that man. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Rich Melman and his team. And then while I was there, Levy's, uh, Mark and Larry Levy called me and asked me when I was done consulting with Rich if I'd join him for dinner. And I did. And they said, you know, we would like to hire you to be our chef here in, in, in Chicago at Spiaggia, which is their signature restaurant. And it was interesting. You know, I, I didn't like the idea of leaving New York. 
but I'd been so far away from my family for so many years in Italy and France and then in New York that I thought, I'm going to come back to the Midwest, which is where my roots are. And so I came back to Moa, came back to Chicago, took the position, and a year later, they made me a partner. Uh, I was an equity owner in the business. It was a sort of golden handcuff. I got, you know. Did increased. you leverage for that or did they no, give it to you? No, they offered it to me a okay. year into it. Uh, in, in 90, I started in 1991. 92, they made me a partner. And then in 93, my brother called me in Milwaukee and said, hey, listen, I have a baby on the way. Would you help me do restaurants in Milwaukee? I'm like, Joe, it's really not a market for what I do in Milwaukee. He's like, bro, I'm telling you, you know, there's nothing like what you do and blah, blah, blah. And we could do something great up here. And, you know, to my brother's credit, he had a vision. And he had necessity. And I was not going to not help my brother under any circumstances. Uh, and so, you know, I came came up here and we found a location. And interestingly enough, it was right across the street from the Chancery where Joe DeRosa was the owner. And it was my second restaurant in the restaurant business. And he was a, became a friend of our family. And, of course, my dad said, hey, you guys, have you told Joe DeRosa you're looking at the space across the street? You can't compete with a friend across the street. Integrity. Yeah. So we set up a meeting with Joe DeRosa, and he said, have you guys raised your money? He said, no, we've got about half of it raised and a little bit less than half. And Joe DeRosa goes, you're going to do the, the food pot? I said, yeah. And he goes, and you're going to be here every day cooking? I said, yeah. And he goes, I'll give you the rest of the money. So Joe DeRosa gave us more than half of the money. We got some local economic development money. He gave us well more than half of the money, and he made sure that my brother and I owned 51% of the business. Who does that? So wait, is Joe, this Joe, Joe DeRosa, was, the other Joe. So he was, was, was he at the Chancery? Is it when he, fr- he was the owner of the, the Chancery. Chancery. He owned a bunch of Chancery. Yes. Okay. So w- there's a theme coming up here. It happened with Rich. It happened with the, the Le- Levy Restaurant Group. Levy, Levy yeah. Restaurant mm-hmm. Group. Thank you. And it's now happening again with Joe. Um, w- what is this theme? I don't, I don't want to say it. I don't want you to say it, but I think I'm, I'm seeing it. Maybe um, maybe I can lead you a little bit more. Yeah, I don't know. It's Passion, this, commitment, work well, it's ethic. This idea that like I've noticed the most successful restaurant groups know that it's not about their success; it's about creating success and opportunity for, for others. A hundred percent, and and that's what they were doing for you. And they didn't say, "Do you want to be an equity partner?" They they made you a partner because I know that like if you're going to show up like you own it, you people show up differently for something that's that, that has their name on the door. A hundred percent, right? And and it's a psychological thing, like. If you get your ego out of the way and you realize it's not about me and my success, but how much success I can create for, for others, others, that will come back around. It will serve you. If you serve others, it will serve you. And I think that he probably knew this. He he knew that, you know, Joe know that if I, if I can, you know, he was a part of my rest. He, he, he got his first well, job he, with us. He, you know? he watched uh, my growth. He, he followed me in Italy and France. He came to visit me when I was in Italy, when in France, when I was apprenticing, because he knew I was this young cook that was actually going to go from a line cook at a sort of a, a more casual restaurant. Uh, and all of a sudden he's like doing serious food and serious restaurants. He followed it, became friends with my father. And, um, and then we did the right thing. You know, we honorably said, you know, we're considering this just as a heads up and we didn't go there to raise money and he said i'll take care of you i'll help you and i'll and he said well i'll help you do your accounting i'll help you do some of your marketing and and he was across the street his office and he helped us had it not been for him my brother and i would have never started our company and i ended up with a lesser share because it was really about me helping my brother joe so our company was founded again where joe had a line the a, a larger ownership because i was already in new york and chicago and at spiaggia i was already a partner and so it was like you know, this was about helping my brother initially. Mm-hmm. And then when my brother determined that that restaurant was too small 
and he had built himself a job. He said, I can't make enough money. It's too small. He goes, we have to do another restaurant. And sure enough, he discovered Lake Park Bistro's building. So real quick, I think there's a lesson in there as far as business goes. You need to be able to do a certain amount of volume. Whether you own a 20-seat restaurant or a 60-seat restaurant, you're going to do roughly the same amount of work every day. Like this, Both those restaurants, the the standard operating procedures are pretty much the same. You've so got to be we there. learned it the hard way. So you need the volume to be able to... We learned it the hard way, but... But not necessarily the wrong way. We were two scared kids. We spent two hundred thousand bucks or so, two hundred twenty thousand opening Ristorante. We paid it off in a year and a half, uh, and we were one hundred percent owners. Uh, Joe DeRosa said, "You know, you guys are doing great. I'm happy to see your success. You know, if you want to buy me out, you know, that's fine. We paid him out, uh, and he put no pressure on us. In another year or so, we were one hundred percent owners of the business. And uh, but what we learned from that was." that you need to have some sort of scale. Because the hardest thing is going from the first restaurant to the second mm-hmm. and the second to the third. Once you got three, you start- The cash flow's there. Building to... a little bit of an organization. Yeah. You sort of figure it out. But there are two types of operators. There's the owner-operator that you own it and you cook in it, but that means you actually live it every day. Yeah. That's very gratifying because you you you're part of, you're touching every bit of it. But then again, you also limit your ability to have a life out beyond because it's always attached to you. You don't have other people taking ownership for the day-to-day running of the business. So you can either work in your business or work on your business. And in a perfect world, if you can really get Elon, you can really find success. Success is working on your business, working to support your people who work on your business. Mm -hmm. That frees you up to work in your business how and when you choose. Yes, yes, and I love that, and I like that. I love that distinguish that 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 you distinguish that. I think people should want to work in their business, you know. And I think I love that balance of listen, like you shouldn't be a slave to your business, but you should want to be there. That's your passion. That's your thing. But you got to find that balance of when I have the opportunity to go promote my business for an event or. Uh, God forbid someone passes away. I want to be there to show my support. You don't want to be a slave to your business. You need to be able to break the shackles. So I have a, I have a funny story. So mid-90s, uh, Spiaggia gets a Hall of Fame award. Uh, it's during the National Restaurant Show in, New, in Chicago. And they're giving a Lifetime Achievement Award to uh, Andre Saltner. Andre Saltner owned Lutece, four-star restaurant for many, many years. And he gets up and gives a speech. And he says... 34 years I ran Lutes and I missed three services. Three nights I wasn't in the kitchen in 34 years. Once when my mother died, once when my father died, and once when I got the Legion of Honor and I flew to France for the day to get my award from Legion d'Honneur and then I came back for the next day. Three services that I was not. So I'm listening to him the same year we won our, uh, our, our Hall of Fame or the Ivy Award. And I, and I went up to him, and I'll never forget the first time I met Andre Saltner was when we were opening San Domenico, and Andre knocked on the kitchen door, and he said, Chef, when I come in, I'm like, are you kidding me? I was this 27, 28-year-old kid. My kitchen door was open on the opening night party. I said, please, let me show you the kitchen, and he knocked out of professionalism. May I come in your kitchen to visit? And the doors were wide open. He could have just walked in, but that just tells you who he was. So I toured him around the kitchen. That's how I met Andre the first time. We'd become friends. But that day, you know, 10 years, eight years later, it hit me and I walked to him and I said, you know, chef, um, I heard your speech and it's inspiration. I said, but 
you know, you're such an icon. You can be in your restaurant every night because you're like the temple that people come and kiss the ring. Mm. I said, the rest of us are in this media world where if we don't stay visible and get out there, you know, just by cooking every day, you out we, of sight, out of mind. Uh, we we could not yeah. we could be unsuccessful. And he said, "No, no, you have to be in your kitchen." And he was walking around, and you could see that he was noodling and thinking about. So after about twenty minutes of the after reception, he came up to me and he grabbed my arm. And he said, "He said, Paul, I was thought about this. People don't pay tickets to Pavarotti to hear the understudy. They want your food. They want your cooking." So then he he looked at me and he said, but I do understand the dilemma of today. Mm. The world has changed. So make sure that you're a chef's chef, that you're a cooking chef. If you're going to go out to do promotional events and chef dinners and things like that, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But don't ever lose your connection with your kitchen. Mm. Don't, ever lose, you know, don't ever lose your connection with the pan. When was this? When did he say this? 19, thing? I don't know, mid-90s. I have to go look what yeah. year. But mid ninety. Five ninety six, yeah. something like that. Where he started, to, the world was changing. Media was already, a big yeah, part of success. Yeah, and he recognized, and it's and it's only accelerated. It's, yeah, even more. I'm doing a podcast. Yeah, right. What the hell was that? You know, twenty <laughs> years ago. Exactly. Um. So you said earlier, and it, it kind of struck a vein with me that your your brother had a vision. What was the vision? What was he trying to do? My brother had a vision for what Milwaukee could be, you know, and he found incredible locations. Um. Talked to me about you know, concept creation, what food should we do? When they saw Lake Park Bistro, he's like, oh, we can do a bigger restaurant. It was our second restaurant. I said, you know, Joe, this feels like a French country bistro. And he's like, but but we're Italian, Paul. I'm like, I know, Joe, but are we going to only do Italian restaurants in Milwaukee in such a small city? He's like, okay. And I said, just think rustic Italian country food, trattoria food that we do in Wauwatosa. And now just think of rustic French country food. Not small portions and high prices and fancy food, but like food that is connects like, you know, choucroute, uh, cocovin, you know, escargot la bourguignon, you know, all the classics, uh, soupe à l'oignon, you know, all the classic French dishes. I said, we can do them. And I, you know, I showed him a few books and he was like, I like it. Let's do it. You're excited about this. This is very much so. I just got back from France. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so we did a French bistro. But my brother's gift was not only great design, but my brother was like like the the greatest coach, the greatest guy, the greatest visionary, um, you know, friendly to everybody. And he just built a culture in our company of just, you know, taking care of the employees, taking care of the guests, taking care of the stakeholders. All the cares that were part of our tenants have carried through all to this day. And they all were started fundamentally at the Bartolotta table. That table, that cherry table yeah. is how we built it. So from there we started doing, you know, a steakhouse and a contemporary American, which is Bacchus and a New England seafood. All these different things were born out of our desire to grow and have our team grow with us. Mm. We you, probably could have made more money with a smaller company than with a bigger company, but it was about growth and ev evolving and challenging ourselves and, and the excitement of it. Yeah. Yeah. True to you. Yeah. But you also said he, he needed, he, uh, he had a vision. He also had, uh, I think you said necessity. Well, early well, on he had necessity because he, he needed money and a baby on the way and he couldn't make money as a manager enough to live the life that he wanted to provide his family. That was the necessity. But then once we started growing, we were never really in it for the money. We were always reinvesting, reinvesting, reinvesting. Probably not the smartest business guys, 
but we we led with our heart, and I think that people know that we I was led with our community. Not a good thing, though. Well, because Bring your money back into your business. Because well, there are three reasons you build a business, right? You build a business to make as much money as you can to build wealth outside of your business. Very, you know, yeah. two, you build the business so it's desirable for somebody to acquire you. You build it to be sold. Mm-hmm. Create something that someone wants to buy as an accelerator, which you see in the dot-com world now than ever, yep. right? Or you build it for transition to family members as part of the heritage of yeah, the family, legacy or, family-owned legacy yeah. business. Um, what was we, that first one again? You so you, you build it just to, to, to milk it, to take as much money out of the business and build personal wealth. Yeah, one. One. Two, two um, you, know, you build it in preparation to sell, yeah. to then liquidate, a and liquidation. And the third is to prepare it for, you know, to be inherited by family members and have it become a family business generationally. So you didn't really have that intentionality behind we it. We didn't think about it in those terms early on. You know, we weren't guys that got our MBAs or stuff like this. We were just guys that were opening restaurants because we loved it. We borrowed yeah. money, we opened one. We made a little money, took a little of that money, reinvested it, borrowed a little money, opened another one. Every year or two, there'd be a new restaurant coming online. There's something to be said too. I think that there's a level of truth that the people who do what you and your brother did also tend to attract onto them themselves the opportunities because you're doing it for the right reasons. So I, th- I feel like you can get blinded. Say if you're you're building, I don't know if you're building something just to turn it and flip it. Like it, like if you're building, say like a, I don't know, like a pizza place or like a, a burrito place where it's doing one thing really well and you build systems around doing this one thing really well. So you can never show up to your restaurant. It's still going to come out exactly the same because it's a system dependent operation, not a people dependent operation. You and your brother are 100 people. Your your business is are you it's an extension of you right? but i will say that as we've grown yeah early on i'm saying early on for yeah. sure but as we've grown it's important that we start creating these standards by which people can know and come to expect because we all go back to the place where we know what to expect and what they do for us that we want we don't want to go you know the uh, my wife doesn't want to go to hair salon every time and have the colorist or or the woman you know the uh cutting her hair be something totally different we go back to the same place for certain things. So it's important that you have that consistency that's critical and that people know what to expect. But you brought up something that I think is really important um, that my brother and I talk about a lot uh, and that that we've always talked about, which is the balance between art and economics. And you brought it up in the context, like if it's not something that's, that has like a heart on the plate, it's not something of real value. Um, And so we, you know, we have always balanced every decision 50-50, art and economics. Sometimes it's 70-30, sometimes it's 30-70. If every decision you make is just with your heart, that's a very passionate, creative way of doing business, but you'll probably go out of business because you're not running a business like a business. Yeah. Conversely, if you run a business only for money, 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 and money, then all of a sudden you'll find yourself without a lot of soul. Yeah. And so when you make a decision, sometimes things that you do are 60-40 on the artistic side, and other times it's 40-60 because you need to. Yes. And so finding that balance as close, good decisions should be equally good for your artistic and for the goodwill of the employees and the goodwill of the guests, but should also be good business decisions to promote the health of the business long-term, right? Because if the decisions you're making aren't going to create a long-term 
healthy, financial, viable business or ecosystem, you aren't going to deliver on doing more for your employees, doing more for your guests, doing more for your stakeholders and shareholders, doing more for your community. If you don't focus on both of those elements, some decisions are art, some decisions are economics, the best ones are 50-50. And and this is what you see a lot of smart restaurateurs building a portfolio of restaurants where they have their cash cows. Like your job is to make the money so we can do the things we love to do. And the wineries do the same thing. You know, the Antonori family sells tons and tons of galestro and, and good, but you know, basic Chianti. But if you ask what they're known for, they're known for Solai and Tignanello and these great wines, but they own a lot of different wineries at different levels because that's how it is. You know, Lexus and Toyota, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're reminding me of a gentleman I had on the show. His name's escaping me. It was like like 600, 700 episodes ago. But he, he started with a, an, a bed and breakfast. And I think it was a Virginia coast or like Carolina coast. High touch. Very like, like won awards and all this stuff. But he wasn't making any money. And he finally had to sell that thing because it was so demanding of him and his team. And just it was such a, a money eating machine. He's like, you know, he, he said, I, I, I advise people to go out if you if you if you're looking to do something you make create your cash cow first get that thing so what he decided to do is barbecue where like they just did barbecue and it was like let's take like attention to detail the cul- like culinary excellence the barbecue and then basically create a systems around this get that going on its own and have that be the cash cow to to pursue the passionate stuff that I like to do what's going you're making faces as I'm saying this what's going well, through because I'm mind? thinking about this because that is. That is the diversification that we have in our portfolio. So food halls, airport restaurants, um, you know, not as qualitatively demanding maybe as our fine dining restaurants, but equally important and representative of our brand. Those are businesses where, where we can do more volume, do something we're proud of, do something that's consistent with who we are, but a more casual version make money and be able to utilize that to reinvest in the infrastructure. So a lot of the work we're doing right now coming out of COVID is reinvesting and moving from a a corporate office to a support office because I believe that our biggest job is to support the success of the people running each individual business for us. And instead of having them, so to speak, you know, work to a business plan, I, to to a to a budget. I want them to write a business plan that has tactical decisions that they want to do and make as an owner would think and how they invest and then share in a greater greater way with the success of the business by motivating them to be more in control of the decisions that they're making and also more accountable for the results both qualitative and quantitative and if the quantitative is there without compromising the qualitative then we want to share more and more. So what's what have you learned about finding those business models that, that achieve this quantitative and qualitative aspects? Well, listen, I, I worked in various places from New York, Chicago, and Vegas. And I tell everybody the most valuable and difficult place to operate for me has been in Milwaukee because it's about the value uh, proposition. You cannot just charge anything like maybe you can do in Las Vegas. That said, Las Vegas has some really demanding a clientele that comes from the world at win. So depending on where you're playing, each one of them has a different reality. So being in New York is different from being in Chicago. Being in Chicago is very different from being in Las Vegas. Being in Italy and France is different from being in Milwaukee. Yeah. And they're all different. So being, being able to take what you've 
learned in overseas, New York, Chicago. Do you think you stood out when you came to Milwaukee? Were you? I actually didn't stand out at all because I made a conscious effort to stay in the background in Milwaukee. The face of our company was always my brother. And after my brother passed, I kind of realized, well, that was a humble way of approaching it. Um, And it was intended to promote my chefs and what they were doing. They were almost all my protégés, not all, but many. Um, At the end of the day, uh, people didn't know how deeply involved I was in the genesis of the company and the macro growth of the company. I wasn't here day to day every day while I was in Chicago and Vegas. But this was always, you know, my company with my brother. Yeah. And so people are like, oh, so, you know, like, what's your role? I mean, well, I don't know. It's... My brother and I started this company coming up on 30 years. I mean, I mean, this is you're hearing a little bit of the story, but I don't think not everybody knows the real story. And so they know the story of my brother, which is, I mean, I miss him dearly every day. I think about him every day. And none of this would have happened without my brother's vision. But I think I had a little something to do with it. So real quick, just just lay it out from 1993 to modern, like the current time. Like, how many restaurants have you opened under your, in your brother's? So there's 17 uh, businesses totally. And then if you put the airport ones and divide them into three rather than one business enterprise, they would probably more so. But but, but 17 is the kind of the term we use because some of them have more than one concept attached to it. Or something. How many have closed? Um, currently, we have only, we've reconcepted two. We've had a clunker. We, we closed... Um, um, Ristorante in and Downer Street. That did, location did not make it. So again, humbling business. No one ever, you know, Babe Ruth struck yeah. out how many times? My brother and I, we had our clunkers. Yeah. But currently, we only have uh, two in the in the pandemic moment. Two that we haven't reopened yet. One is a pizzeria that was low revenue and low margin. So so you're batting like nine hundred. We're batting pretty well. We're, <laughs> yeah. we're doing pretty well. That's I mean, we've had, we've had our mistakes, though. It is yeah. a humbling business. So um, as, a, as a group of restaurant people, when I hear people trash talk in other businesses, it really angers me because it's just so hard. Yeah. And nobody has the magic bullet. Nobody has the magic formula. And we're all going to be humbled one day down the road. So, again, you share... When people, the pandemic was going on and people, protégés would call and say, hey, how are you handling this? What are you doing with this? I shared everything and I said, how, what are you doing? Maybe I can learn from you too. This is what I'll share with you. What are you doing? Because the answer is we were all trying to figure it out. Yeah. There was no roadmap for this one. Yeah. So there's no way in 17 total, I think at least 17 with the two closed, 19 total locations, whatever it was, we're going to be able to drill down and extract little nuggets on each concept. But from a macro standpoint, the evolution of you as a businessman, what were the biggest lessons you learned, things over your your career as an owner, as a a chef owner that you can drop on us? So coming into COVID, um, so first we lost my brother. I'm so sorry. And coming back, you know, being with him the day or so before he passed, getting on a plane, going to Italy, visiting my wife and daughter. My daughter was in high school in Italy. And I landed and I got a call that my brother had passed and I had to get all of our senior leadership team in a room and do a Skype call and let them know and the gasps and the sobbing. And I was on the other side of the world and I had lost my brother. Uh, I lost my partner. Um, 
my life was forever changed. Um, I got on a plane and I spent probably nine months just trying to worry about all the people that this affected. I, I certainly didn't take a moment to myself. I mean, one of the first questions that the marketing team asked me, what are you going to call yourself? I'm like, what do you mean? Well, is it Bartolotta or Bartolotta? And I'm like, well, what a question is that? I said, well, we need to know that. And I was like, and, and, you know, what are we going to do for Joe's celebration of life? And, and I was like, wow, all these crazy questions. And I was like, I just lost my brother, but it had to be done. Like we had, Joe was such a iconic guy. It was like, he was like one of the most visible people in the entire city. So that was a massive change. And then, um, I had to sort of reintroduce myself to everybody locally that I've been here all along. And so I have to, I feel that I had to earn everyone's trust here and not that I didn't feel comfortable in my experiences or my knowledge of the company, but I had to reintroduce myself to everybody here, yeah. which was tough. The probably the hardest thing or the biggest challenge was nine months after that COVID. Mm. And I was talking with my friends in Italy and they were telling me how terrible it was going on in Italy. And, and before the, even the state shut down, I shut down all my restaurants. Why was that a fun idea? Was that a good idea? No. First, I only thought it'd be a couple weeks. Wow, was I wrong? But I did it because I, I put my employees first. I had hearing about people dying of COVID, and I said, it's not going to happen on my watch for a business. No, no, I'm going to close for a bit. And I kept all my salaried people on salary, paid their benefits, and then kind of talking to my finance team at some point, I'm like, how long can we do this? And they're like, well, not any longer. And after, you know, six or eight weeks, they said, you know, you don't have the liquidity to just, you know, all of a sudden all the faucets yeah. got turned off and then you start making tough decisions uh, uh, on doing the right thing. So, you know, the old story of the airline, you know, they say, you know, as a parent, put your mask on first. Yeah. You got to protect the company. Yep. Because if you don't protect the company, there'll be no jobs for anybody. Yeah. There'll be no legacy for all the people who are depending on you, future generations, future employees. So we had to make some very difficult decisions, but they're always rooted in those values. What do we do first and foremost for our employees? How do we treat our, our guests when they come in? How are we transparent as to what our situation was with our vendors and our stakeholders? And then letting the community know that this is a moment that I'm not in a position to do a lot of community giving, but when I can and I will, I'll be back. Yeah. And we are. Now the the food courts or the, the market. Food halls. The food halls, thank you. Uh, was that before or post-pandemic? Uh, what, when we opened them? Yeah. No, we all, we owned them before, and uh, uh, one is them is executive dining for a company that we are contracted with, uh, and the other one is in a, uh, in a high-rise building in downtown. Okay. And they would call and say, when are you going to open downtown kitchen? I'm like, well, when's the building going to be full? Yeah. Well, we can't fill the building until there's a food hall open. And I'm like, literally that's not the reason people aren't coming back to work. You know, it's, there's nobody. And so we opened at some point because we believed that it was important for our community. It wasn't a good business decision, but we needed to be that catalyst to say, come back to work. The food halls open. We're here for you. So we're running it, um, a little bit more, uh, modest, you know, not all the lines and all the stations are open, but we're open and running, you know, hopefully that the building will fill up again, but the work, work from the office reality is certainly quite different 
from pre-pandemic, and I don't know if it'll ever go back to what it was, so we're going to have to wait and watch. Yeah, I, I, I think we're starting to realize that people do their best work with others. We're meant to be shoulder to shoulder. I don't think we're – I think it's in our nature. We're tribal. We're, we're, we're collective, you know, and I think that we feed off that energy when we're around mm, I don't people, know. I mean, you know? I, again, I've heard mixed things. There's been a lot of studies on this. There's been a lot of people talking about it. I think it's a mix. I mean, we're not in a business where you can email in – you know, a waiter or email in a cook to cook dinner. Yeah. We're frontline people. Yeah. Um, so, but a lot of other businesses, you know, attorneys, finance people, you know, they can, you, you can't go to a doctor from an email, although they can do med MD and do some quick diagnoses. But I, I'd rather actually have, see the doctor. Yeah. Myself. Yeah, I hear that. Um, so a couple of things I'm really interested in that I think you're uniquely positioned to speak about. Uh, one is this fact that you've been in the industry now for, over like you know since the 80s you know over 30 years they're almost 40 years right 40 years the the industry has evolved i'm just getting started by the way so much but technologically like there's so much happening right now uh how have you been able to evolve with the evolving industry how has that been for you well you got to know you got to play to your strengths you got to know who you are and what you do and do well and not try to be everything to everybody or to play to areas that are not natural to you or that you don't feel yourself you're fitting you know I'm not hip and cool and trendy. I'm no hipster. Um, so for me to try to play in that world, it's not going to work. You know, Rich Melman has his kids uh, who are helping him evolve some of his concepts that are more relevant than younger. Uh, my nieces, um, you know, are interested in the business. You know, they have a fresh approach. So maybe they'll have more of an impact long term in, in where we evolve in the younger. But while sort of I'm doing the day to day today, uh, I've played more in the fine dining area. That's what we do. Those are kind of what we built our brand on. So we are also, you know, helping uh, our guests understand which of our units are more casual and which are fine dining. So a little bit Lexus and Toyota. We're focusing on investing in in a lot of our technology and infrastructure so that we can improve uh, the efficiency and the effectiveness by which we we work. Uh, because we believe that that by investing in people is the most important thing you do, but technology plays a significant role in doing it. So having worked at uh, Win Las Vegas, having a restaurant with Steve out in Las Vegas for 11 years, um, boy, that was a masterclass in business for me. That was a masterclass in efficiency and, uh, and running a tight business. Steve never once started a meeting like, you know, how much money did you make? It was always like, how do I, how can I support you? Are you getting everything you need? How do we make your restaurant? How do we make it better? It was always about better. It wasn't bigger. Steve used to have to say, you know, bigger isn't better. Better is better. Yeah. And it was all about excellence. I love that. I like to echo growth isn't external. It's internal. And that internal growth, that better makes the external. Happen. How do we get better at getting better? You know, don't leave it to others. Have never ending attention to detail. You know, um, you know. Take responsibility for what you do. Um, you know, these are fundamental, you know, principles by which you operate with. And, and as an organization, they connect with our tenants. Yeah. And so we, you, we use words like integrity and authenticity as dialogues to or words that describe what our, how we live our life and how we do it. But our purpose ended up to be more about what do we do to be embedded and be a part of the fabric of our communities? That's what we ended up being yeah. as a purpose. We started out opening restaurants, 
but in reality, we're in the people business. We're not in the restaurant business. Yeah. We're in the people business. In, in what verticals are you leaning more on technology today versus in the past? And don't be afraid to pull that mic close yeah, to the yeah. No, so HRIS for sure is a massive investment on our end, automating our ability to better communicate. The way I view this is if I can shave 15 minutes worth of time off of every manager in my restaurant by automating the back office system of the processes, I'm, I hired them not to be office people. I hired them to be personalities and, and build relationship with customers on the floor. I hired the, the, the chefs to be, you know, I want them as part of our team because I want them to be excited about new menu items or, or introducing a new wine. And if they're spending time doing office work and paperwork, that's not what they're wired to do. That's not the kind of personality profile that we looked for yeah. when we hired them. So our job is to support them through technology to make their job as efficient and effective as possible so they can play to their strengths and be out there and and be taking care of the guests. So what technology are you investing in specifically? Like give us some examples in the different verticals of back house back house. Yeah, so there's a, a number of them that are integrated. We we're, we we've we've taken this opportunity to a deep dive and and the we obviously have a great accounting package and then now we're adding an HRIS system that's going to help us really create an intranet so we can really better communicate amongst ourselves, have standardization of all policies and procedures, have much more automation of process um, and workflow and then subsequently being able to have it something that will be user friendly for the line employee as well as the management obviously with certain you know controls and protocols we think this is a significant investment in in our ability to communicate and create a one team environment so the other thing that we've been doing a lot of is we've been making sure that we're doing way more cross training and making sure everybody's working all the restaurants because we want everyone to be a brand ambassador for what the other restaurants in our group and other concepts are doing. So we're all promoting each other. All boats rise together. Yeah, I love that. So one thing I really wanted to talk to you about, as somebody who's won two James Beard Awards, uh, I've noticed in my journey across the country talking to restaurateurs, especially I just feel like there's I, I can't help but notice some people that I got on the show earlier on during the show that I was chasing people who won awards, right? I was like, who do I talk to? How do I find both people who've won awards? Like clearly James Beard does their research. Mm -hmm. Michelin star does their research. And I couldn't help but realize that a lot of these people I was entering to or speaking to the, the semifinalists, the winners, a lot of them weren't profitable. A lot of them, they were white in the face while I was talking to them being like, how are you successful? Talk to me about the profit of your business and how you're doing this. And they're just like, not. You know, do you think that there's an issue in our industry now where we're more interested in awards and ego and chasing those things and not being fiscally responsible first to do you, do you see where so I'm going I, with this? I do. I do. So am I, am I stretching my reaching? No, not at all. So I've never been a self promoter. Yeah. And that probably hasn't served me particularly well mm -hmm. in terms of me and my individual brand as a chef, but I've practiced my craft and I've shared my craft. And my craft has been carried over into, and I see it all over my restaurants here in Milwaukee and any restaurant, whether it was San Domenico or, or, you know, Spiaggia, Cafe Spiaggia and Spiaggia private dining room in Chicago or at Bartolot at Wynn Las Vegas. So depending on where I was, I was always very focused on the craft right now. I'm spending a little bit more time on the business of the business so that at one point, as I told you before, success to me is the freedom to work on my business, not in my business, so that I can work in my business where I want yeah. to and how I want to in that term. 
But you can't do that until you've biz- built business economics that are really sustainable. This uh, disruption was devastating for our industry. Make no mistake. Some people got some government support and, and things like this. We took what we could, what was available to us, and it has saved us. I don't know if you didn't get any support how you survived closing your restaurants for three to six months, um, you know, maintaining your people. But it's rough out there in our industry. So I am extremely aware of how difficult our industry has always been. It's a business that's always had a relatively low margin and a lot of high work and high touch. Uh, We're not high tech, we're high touch. And as a result, it's a very difficult business with a low margin. Um, Again, you want to, you know, do thousands of people and serve, you know, kind of crappy food at low prices, or you want to do like really high end food and very boutique and not a lot of volume at super high prices. Maybe those are the formulas, the ones in the middle, which we have found when this COVID hit everybody in the middle, a lot of people traded down and all those restaurants in the middle have, have felt it more acutely. And I have a few in that category as well, that mid range price, very difficult thing to deal with. It's a shrinking margin. Now we have wage inflation, supply chain issues, product inflation, cost of goods going up. And the customer isn't necessarily wanting to pay more yeah, because yeah. they're paying more at the pump. They're paying more. So you have to be, you have to have a long-term view mm-hmm. and we, we don't view this as a sprint. We view this as a marathon. I mean, would you say um, today versus say in 2005 or, or four, there are more, a, a higher number of restaurants doing more elevated food? It's an interesting question. I think there's been a mix. I think there's a lot of restaurants that don't put tablecloths anymore yeah. and it's more casual and it's cool and hip and, and more trendy. Focusing on the food, not so much on the, the other details the, that all increase the your costs. Are, right. Yeah. That are, so that's a good thing. Things evolve for a, region, a reason. I, I'm a... I'm a little bit of a traditionalist. I think that people like a nice padded table. Mm-hmm. I think they like nice linens. I think they like better quality glassware that matches. I think that they like, you know, silver and high quality flatware um, and 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 more evolved cooking. So I believe in those things. I'm not saying it's right for everybody, but I think that you have to decide where you play mm-hmm. and then how you want to play in that arena. Yeah. And then make sure that the economic models that you build work. Yeah. Uh, that the economic formula between your occupancy, the relationship, the investment to revenue, all those things make sense. Yeah. So um, you were earlier talking, obviously, you were mentioning the, the group you're in, mentors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you call yourself ment- a mentor, yeah. Mentors. Big part of what I'm trying to communicate to, uh, this idea of mentorship, of paying it forward. I think that's going to be the key to evolving our industry is really embracing that. Uh, you're talking earlier about how when you were coming up, a big part of it was staging, is going out there and getting the experience and working for next to nothing, really, to an exchange. No, no, for not next to In many cases, nothing. Yeah. For a long time. So I don't know if. Did you read the book recently that came out, Corey Mintz's book, um, The Next Dinner, The Next Diner or something? I didn't or, see that one. Yeah, The Next Dinner, I think it's what it's called. And it's basically like his. Uh, he's a, He was a writer in Toronto um, and he's he's worked in restaurants. He's been a writer. And the, a lot of the narrative behind that book is this idea that um, the most. The, the fanciest restaurants, the most expensive restaurants are also the restaurants that pay the le- the least amount for labor. I think that was part of the argument. Uh, 
Well, because again, they're training for experience and, and that that mentorship, right? You're 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 working to be able to tie your name to other successful brands and to get that experience. But, uh, he's he's argu- his argument is that this is broken and that we need to get away from this. Then we need to start paying people. Where do you, what, what are your thoughts on that as somebody who's done it and had success doing it the traditional way of putting the time and the energy and the the networking and to learn? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think there's I see both sides of it. Well, currently we're operating many of our restaurants, you know, coming out of COVID on a five day work week, and what we found is is that we're not having hardly any attrition in the workforce, but in this very tight labor market, it's also not a moment where it's easy to staff up. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how and when that's gonna really fully change. You can push your staff by opening up and and doing more business, but if, if 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 it is at the expense of the employee, then it's a bad choice. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we talk about it being the marathon, not the sprint. Will it go back to seven days, seven days, lunch and dinner? Who knows? We will monitor that as the business needs. What's important is that the employees are making a good living. We've we've increased our, our wages pretty significantly across the board because the cost of living has gone up and because to keep the best people, this is what it takes. But if you saddle yourself with such high wages in the long term, you have to figure out how the economy is going to rebound and what it'll be like in the future. So we kind of look at this, you know, cautiously because we'd rather be running for fewer days now and with a more consistent result than sort of forecast into the unknown because there's still a lot of unknown out there. I, I do believe, though, that our the, the check average has not kept pace with the cost to build. No. The cost of food, the cost of labor, the cost of benefits, benefits. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it's 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 a tough, tough business. Yeah. And and everybody who thinks the restaurant business is a bad business, I'm here to tell you it's a cash flow business, it's a great business. But you need economic formulas where the volumes and the margins work to be able to continue the ecosystem of reinvesting. Yeah. Where you can take care of your people appropriately career path them so they can grow within your organization, reinvest so that you're always improving the experience for the guest, Mm -hmm. reinvest so you're always timely and respectful of your vendors and your stakeholders and your landlords and your partners, and then also having the resources to reinvest in your community. So our ecosystem is you need a, a healthy ecosystem to have the whole thing work. Yeah. So this is a good segue into my last question. I like to echo the mission statement. Uh, the, the mission is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Where, in what way would you like to see the industry transform? If it could transform at all, which direction do you think we need to go? How can we be a better industry? I think we're doing that already. I think that there was a long time where, and I don't think that my brother and I were necessarily Uh, I think we are at the forefront of it where we have always put employees first. But I will tell you, if I look back on how I was treated coming up, wow, maybe that's what it took back then. But I wouldn't wish that on my daughter. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want that for my neighbor's kid. I'm not going to treat people in that same way. I do believe that excellence is a habit. And I believe that if you want to be great at what you do, it takes time and effort. You know, Michael Jordan to get Michael Jordan just because he wished it. He, he put forth the effort and the hard work. So there's no shortcut for Andre Agassi's, you know, a thousand, you know, 10,000 tennis balls to win the U S open. There is no shortcut 
for anybody in our industry to get ahead. But the way in which we go about it has already changed and it changed for the better. I love it. Great conversation, Chef Paul. Thank you so much. One more quick break to thank our sponsors and we're going to bust out a true speed round. It's no secret that restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines, like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. With the Pop Menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and you can choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow up links via text message pop menu answering picks up your phone 24 7 365 days a year allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering and for a limited time my listeners can get 100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off for your first month and learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RS. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We are back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Indefatigable. Indefatigable. Can I get a definition, please? It comes from the root word unfatigable. (laughs) Okay. So just keep going. Unstoppable. No, just, I just, I just, I never fatigue. I keep going. I keep pushing no matter what hits you every single day. 
You just got to get up, do the best you can today. Tomorrow's another day. Got it. What is your biggest weakness? Time management. What is one question you ask your team or your, your people? By the way, time going? management. It's because I try to put 10 pounds of, 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 of my life in a five-pound bag. <laughs> what is one question you ask when you're looking to grow your team during the interview process? Like, What are you looking for as you're growing your team? Sparkle. Mm. What is sparkle? The enthusiasm for living. We can train technique. We can train work. Um, you can't train. You you, you got to hire great people. People that sparkle. Yeah. I love it. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Inspiring uh, growth. Inspiring yeah. the team to see to see what they're truly capable of. To to lead the team and get them as excited as I am about the future. It's it, it's been it's it this has t- taken an effect on the psyche of the people that we work with in our industry and I want them to, to find that excitement to continue to to feed that excitement it's a great business yeah. how are you overcoming it the challenge communication 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 lead by example what is one code of conduct or be behavior or core value you teach your team integrity above all else what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. So something's common throughout the four walls of your restaurant, but not common throughout the industry. I think we try to focus on knowing the name of the guest. Mm. How do you Every, do that? Um, well, you use technology when you get the reservations yep. and then you make sure that, that the becomes a habit that the hostess and the manager repeats it. That when the guest, we break down the guest experience into like little bini guest moments. So when they call, that's an opportunity to address the name, the guest by name. When they show up and you get their information, you repeat their name back to them. When the host or hostess or, or manager walks them to the floor, they, they, to their table, they, they gain guest knowledge and they address the guest by name. When they give the chit to the table number to the servers, we let them know who position one or two, whatever it is, and they address the guest by name. It's important to know who's in the dining because tomorrow when they come back, there will be other servers in other areas that will recognize them. They all have to be recognized. I love that. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Oh gosh, there's too many. That's impossible. <laughs> Pick a couple. Um, oh, I don't know. Uh, a book about rest. Oh my God. It can be any book. It doesn't have to be about restaurants. It's like a personal book, a business book, a personal growth book. Um, gosh, I don't know. Uh, I'm a ferocious reader, uh, and it's a, what a question! It's like you know, what's your what's your, <laughs> yeah. what's your favorite opera? What's I the mean? most recent book that's had an impact on you? Um, right now I'm finishing. I'm a friend of mine said, you know, you're doing more and more public speaking, and he, there's a book. I, I don't want to get the name wrong, but it said, um, "Stand like Lincoln, speak like Churchill." Mm. Beautiful. It's the first time recommended on the show. I'm going to have to check that one out. As it's about public speaking. And yeah. the one thing that I would like early on, it said, you know, when you're in a group, you know, the the moment of a pause. And I didn't realize it, but if you look at the great orders, they always find a moment to pause. Mm. And I didn't really, and I studied it and I said, wow, that's incredible. So I was, I was giving a speech not too long ago and people were talking and it was a cocktail party and no one was listening. And I introduced myself and I stopped. And everybody heard me say something, and then they all like looked up, like, "What's going on over here?" Yeah. And I and I realized, wow, that really works. <laughs> That's awesome. What is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Um, take enough time to find green space, travel, refresh themselves because 
they have to be that vision and they get so wrapped up in the day-to-day they forgot living and they forget that when they go out and and get out of their 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 sent their universe they come back refreshed mm. with new ideas and they push the envelope what is green space i've never heard that expression uh green space is when you find a place where you can have no distractions where you can find your creative self you can reconnect with what it is that 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 stimulates your yeah. creative side got it what is one piece of technology you've recently adopted within the four walls of your restaurants that's had a huge impact on profitability communication efficiency anything along those lines I would say HRIS. HRIS? What is yeah. that? Uh, human Research Information System. Got it. Is that a company? No, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a back office software for human resources. Okay, beautiful. And um, this is the last question. It's a big one, so get ready for it. Oh, boy. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What were those three pieces of wow, wisdom? Wow, read that, read that one again. So the, the, the just of it is what are three pieces of wisdom? Basically, if you could just leave three pieces of wisdom behind, what are those three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy? So the good of humanity. Um, how about the ones that I tell my daughter, Julia? Yes. Because my wife and my daughter are my everything. Mm-hmm. I get up every day because I love them and because they're my everything. Family first. One. So family first. Um, one would be uh, a lesson my dad told me, which was you have a little bird on your shoulder that, that is your conscience, and it chirps in your ear every day. And that little bird tells you when you're doing right or doing it wrong. And you always need to listen to the bird, not that it should create doubt in your decisions, but it should be that moral compass that drives you every single day. And, 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 the, and once you steal a pencil... It seems like it's a nothing, but it wasn't your pencil. Yeah. And so listening to that bird is your moral compass and will always tell you what you don't want to hear. You got to never stop listening to the bird. Yeah. So family first, listen to the bird. What's number three? Oh, um, for me, again, as I said, you know, it's, you know, faith, food and faith, family and food. And so I think I've covered the, uh, the family part. Um, I think the bird has a lot to do with, you know, you're doing right and wrong and faith. And I guess then I would leave it with, with, you know, make sure that as a, uh, I'm gonna say as a chef, this is the least important in my mind. We're people, we're not chefs. We're not restaurant people. We're people. We're in the people business. I would say on the food side, find your own voice. Mm. Use the sum total of your experiences. So as a culinarian, your personality, your voice comes through. Sounds no like one sounds like Pav- no one sings like Pavarotti. Yeah. No one sounds like Sting or Joe Cocker or Zucchero or whatever. Each of the great people have found their own voice. Yes. Be authentic to yes. you. Yes, yes. I've loved this conversation, Chef. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. Those who, were tough. I know, man. You, you, you handled it really well, though. Uh, who do you respect and admire in the industry? If you found out that this person was a guest in the show, you'd absolutely want to hear what they have to say. Oh, God, that's unfair. There's too many. <laughs> the There's, first couple names that come to mind. That would be on the show... And the reason why I ask this question while you're thinking is because I'm really trying to get to the point where the industry decides who should be made an example of. Like, who am I to decide who the next guest is? Uh, I wanted to 
talk to people who've had success, who recognize success. And I want success recognizes success, you know, and I, and I think that should be steering the ship of restaurant unstoppable. So you, so restaurants, so you're talking about a chef or somebody? Uh, I like owner. I want somebody who, the, the, the target audience is owners, restaurant owners. Uh, so chef owners or owners. I think if you don't talk to Rich Melman, if you haven't spoken to Rich Melman, I have not, but he's you, high on my list. Can I tell you something? Um, he views the psychology of people. Um, he's multi generational. He's had three star Michelin and super fine dining restaurants, and he's done a little bit of everything, and he's done it with humility and grace. And uh, and he's treated his partners well. He's made partners. He's made tons of millionaires. He's and if you ask guys like Danny Meyer or guys like you know Steve Hansen at Be Our Guest and these people who they went to, um, Rich Melman. You should talk to Rich Melman. He's amazing, beautiful. And uh, if we're interested in joining your team, what's the best way to connect? If we've been inspired by you, we want to come work with you. What's the best way to connect? I mean, our website bartolaz dot com, and just um, if you're interested in coming and joining our team. Um, we're a great family, a great family of, of employees who are passionate about what we do. We hold ourselves to a super high standard. We take ourselves seriously, but not too much. Yes. Chef Paul Bartolota, thank you so much. Bartolota, nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef Paul Bartolota, for coming on the show. And man, uh, talk about creating your own opportunities. You can only get so many wide open doors to walk through in your life. You got to kind of, you know, push that door open. If there's a crack, you know, push that door open by showing up an hour early to take care of your side work so you can learn so you can show people that you care and when you show people you care they will knock that door down for you and that's what happened today but you got to take that initiative and i think a big part of this too is like you really have to have passion for this industry you have to be willing to sacrifice your personal time uh to well, I mean, you're really not sacrificing your personal time because with your personal time, you want to learn. You're you're that passionate about the industry. And I think that Chef Paul Bartolota is a perfect example of that. So thank you so much for, for being a shining example, Chef Paul. Chef Paul. And uh, if you guys want more content like this, I need your help. We're trying, we're trying to take this thing to the next level. We're trying to do 100% on-site interviews, and I'm trying to have a videographer on the road with me. That videographer alone is going to cost me $60,000, and the travel uh, two episodes a week, not cheap, guys. And I'm, I'm doing this because I really want to take the podcast to the next level. I believe in the audio quality, the experience of in-person podcasts just, just beats remote recording, and this is the future of Restaurant Unstoppable, but we need your help, and here's how you can help. Use our sponsors. Anytime you hear an ad, I'm telling you, I vet these sponsors. We don't let anybody sponsor the show. We're looking out for you. Use our affiliates. Anytime there's a tool or service organically recommended on the show, if they have an affiliate program, I sign up for it. If you use our links, we can make some money, and that helps a lot. Share this podcast with everyone you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry. Come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Be a part of the conversation. I'm trying to get as many of my past guests in that network as possible to share their knowledge, and you're also sharing knowledge with each other. And then lastly, if you have not yet, head over to 
youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable subscribe to that youtube channel and help us grow that thing okay that's it for today until next time peace out